And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is December the 12th, 346th day of the year. 19 days remain till the year is over with. And we get to do it all again. Holidays and observances, which you all asked me to do. National Dingling Day, National Poinsettia Day, Gingerbread House Day, Hanukkah, uh, Blue Christmas, which uh, celebrates uh, first responders. Uh, let's see. Gift of Sight Month, Operation Santa Paws, Worldwide Food Service Safety Month, National Right of Business Plan Month. National Tie Month, and National Pear Month, and Universal Human Rights Month. Alrighty. In 627 A.D., the Battle of Nineveh. Byzantine army under Emperor Heraclius defeats Emperor Khosrau, the first Persian forces commanded by General Rajad, 1388, Maria of Einhein sells the lordship of Argos and Napula to the Republic of Venice. 1787, Pennsylvania becomes the second state to ratify the Constitution. 1862, American Civil War, USS Cairo sinks on the, the Yazoo River. It was the, the lead ship in the city-class casement ironclads built at the beginning of the Civil War to Serve as river gunboats. It's uh, named for Cairo, Illinois. June of 1862, she captured the Confederate garrison of Fort Pillow on the Mississippi, which enabled the Union forces to uh, occupy Memphis. And as part of the Yazoo Pass expedition, she was sunk on December 12, 1862, while uh, clearing mines for the attack on Haynes Bluff. It was the first ship ever to be sunk by a mine remotely detonated by hand. Uh, you can see the remains of the Cairo at the Vicksburg National Military Park with a museum of its um, weapons and naval stores. Yazoo passed uh, expedition, for those who are not familiar with it, joint operation of the Ulysses S. Grant's Army of the Tennessee and Rear Admiral David Porter's Mississippi River Squadron in the Vicksburg campaign of the American Civil War. Uh, Grant wanted to get his troops into a flanking position against the rebel defenders. Um, the expedition was an effort to bypass the Confederate defenses on the bluffs near the city by using the backwaters of the Mississippi Delta as a route from the Mississippi to the Yazoo River. Once on the Yazoo, the Army would be able to cross the river unopposed and achieve their goal. There's always more than one way to skin a cat, as they used to say. 1866, Oaks Explosion, the worst mining disaster in England, kills 361 miners and rescuers. 1870, Joseph Rainey of South Carolina becomes the second black U.S. congressman. 1901, Marconi gets the first transatlantic radio signal, the letter S, three dots, in Morse code, at Signal Hill in St. John's, Newfoundland. 1915, Yuan Shikai declares the establishment of the Empire of China and proclaims himself emperor. 1917, Father Edward Flanagan founds Boys Town as a farm village for wayward boys. 1835, Liebesborn Project, Nazi reproductive uh, uh, program, is founded by Heinrich Himmler. 1937, the Second Sino-Japanese War. USS Panay incident, Japanese aircraft bomb and sink the U.S. gunboat USS Panay on the Yangtze River in China. Since Pearl Harbor had not yet happened, that was um, considered a regrettable accident, don't you know? <clears throat> 1939, HMS Duchess sinks after a collision with HMS Barham off the coast of Scotland with the loss of 124 men. 1939, Winter War, Battle of Harvey, also known as the first major Finnish victory in the Winter War, begins. 
1941, World War II, 54 Japanese A6M-0 fighters raid uh, Batangas Field in the Philippines. Uh, Jesus Villamor and four Filipino fighter pilots fend them off. Cesar Abasa uh, is killed. Also, 1941, the Holocaust, and Hitler declares imminent extermination of the Jews in a meeting at the Reich Chancellery. 1945, the People's Republic of Korea is outlawed in the South by order of the United States military government in Korea. 1946, United Nations Security Council Resolution 13 relating to acceptance of Siam, which is now Thailand, into the United Nations is adopted. 1956, United Nations Security Council Resolution 121 relating to acceptance of Japan to the United Nations is adopted. 1963, Kenya declares independence from Great Britain. 1969, Piazza Fontana bombing. Bomb explodes on the, the headquarters at Barca Nacional del Agricultura, National Agricultural Bank in the Piazza Square, Milan, Italy. Killed 17 and wounded 88. That same afternoon, three more bombs are detonated in Rome and Milan, and another is found that didn't go off. 1979, an 8.2 Tumaco earthquake shakes Colombia and Ecuador with a maximum of Cayley intensity of 9, which is considered violent, uh, killing three to 600 people and generating a large tsunami. 1979, coup d'etat December 12th occurs in South Korea. 1985, air, air flight uh, 1285R, McDonnell Douglas DC-8, crashes after takeoff in Gander, Newfoundland, killing all 256 people on board, including 236 members of the United States Army's 101st Airborne Division. 1988, the Clapham Junction rail crash kills 35 and injures hundreds after two collisions of three commuter trains. One of the worst train crashes in the UK. 1999, a magnitude 7.3 earthquake hits the Philippines, main island of Luzon. Kills six people, injures 40, and causes power outages that affect the capital of Manila. 2000, the United States Supreme Court releases its decision in Bush versus Gore. The um, settled a recount dispute in Florida's 2000 presidential election. Florida Supreme Court had ordered a statewide recount of all undervotes. Over 61,000 ballots that the vote tabulation machines had missed. Bush campaign asked the Supreme Court to state the decision and halt the recount. Justice uh, Scalia convinced that all the manual recounts being performed in Florida's uh, count, uh, counties were illegitimate, urged his colleagues to grant the stay immediately. Um, December 9th, the five conservative justices of the court granted the stay with Scalia, citing irreparable harm that could befall Bush as the recounts could cast a needless, unjustified uh, cloud over Bush's legitimacy. Well, that wasn't the first election, nor the last, where there was questionable activity. 2001. Prime Minister of Vietnam, Van, Van Kai, announces the decision to upgrading the Phong Nha Ke Bang Nature Preserve to a national park, providing information on projects for the conservation and development of the park and even revised maps. 2012, North Korea successfully launches its first satellite, Quang Myong Song 3, Unit 2. 2015, the Paris Agreement relating to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is adopted. In 2021, Dutch Formula One racing driver Max Verstappen wins the controversial 2021 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, beating seven-time world champion Lewis Hamilton, becoming the first Formula One world champion to come from the Netherlands. Well, there have been, oh, no telling how many, um, hmm. There we go. There's been no telling how many, um, conspiracy 
theories have come out of the Kennedy assassination. And I've heard all of them. I've been researching it since I was... I heard about the assassination. I was 10. And I started researching it when I was about 15. I've been researching it ever since. Then I came across the work of... Uh, that called into question exactly how many Lee Harvey Oswalds are running around. And it's interesting to note that the CIA's handiwork showed up in a number of instances and the Oswald conspiracy is basically this. From the time he was in elementary, there were two children going under the name of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. One went by Lee, one went by Harvey. And one was uh, actually a uh, an immigrant from uh, Eastern Europe, very fluent in Russian. And the question becomes, which one was real? Well, it turns out that Lee Harvey Oswald, the real one's brother, he had an older brother that very little has been written about, who actually was a member of the CIA. And he was involved in... Uh, setting up what is called the legend uh, for his brother and his brother's um, doppelganger, I guess you should say. And in one of the uh, JFK record dumps that took place in 2005, another individual whose name occasionally has popped up, named Richard Gibson, was outed as a spy. Now, according to um, a little blurb on the internet and a strange twist on April 26th when the National Archives released thousands of documents pertaining to the assassination of Kennedy, they included three CIA files on Richard Gibson. According to the documents, he'd served U.S. intelligence from 65 to 77 and... Um, it doesn't go into really his, a lot of his history, but the file revealed his CIA code name, QR Phone 1. His salary was about 900 a month, and his various missions and uh, performance reports. Now, there was another um, spy involved in this mix named Robert Tabor. And his background was pretty much the same as Gibson's. Fought in the war, which is most likely when he was recruited by intelligence. I mean, if you had half a brain, you were snatched up by the OSS almost immediately. And even though you don't hear a great deal about the OSS, it had a lot of power and control over the direction of the war. And uh, it had... Um, people in important positions throughout government. And between 1941 and 1945, the OSS recruited tens of thousands of operatives, as they were called. And after the war, all these folks, of course, went home and got jobs. And, and in '47, when the CIA came into existence, the majority of these recruited in the OSS called back. And a lot of them got wrapped up under the what was called Project Mockingbird. Um, it was activated in 1953, and it was to influence and control newspapers and what you know, basically the the public persona of government. Um, It had a major influence over 25 
major newspapers and wire agencies, including the New York Times, CBS, Time, um, journalists and publishers were bribed, according to uh, a November 2016 article that appeared in Counterpunch. Some of this money to pay for all this um, came from money that had been intended for the Marshall Plan. So by the time the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was created in uh, 1960, the CIA literally owned American media. And Gibson and Tabor both worked for CBS. Now, after Castro's alignment with the Soviets and his embrace of communism, uh, Gibson and Tabor both denounced the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. They wanted nothing more to do with it. So it was handed off to Vincent Lee. And it was at this point in time that Tabor and Gibson got more active with the CIA. Now, according to an article in 2021 called The Nixie Nexus, FBI undercover asset by the name of Joe Burton reported on November 17, 1963, Oswald visited Tampa and attended a Fair Flavor Cuba Committee meeting and met with a key member of the, of the uh, committee board. And several other witnesses, including Frank Sturgis, claimed to have seen Oswald in Florida that weekend. But it's also claimed that Oswald's meeting with anti Castro Cubans in Austin at that exact time. Which, of course, brings up the issue of the other Oswald. Now, if Frank Sturgis claimed to have seen Oswald that weekend, clearly he was seeing the imposter. Sturgis was a close friend with another man by the name of William Seymour, who was often mistaken for Oswald. And there's uh, several photos of Seymour and Sturgis together with other members of Alpha, 56, Alpha 66, which was the American Cuban hit squad that was being overseen by Sergio Araka Smith with the support of the CIA. Now, in regard to communication between Oswald and Vincent Lee, Vasilios Vizakas wrote in his essay, uh, Creating the Oswald Legend, on August 1st, 1963, Oswald wrote a letter to Vincent Lee informing him he had opened the P.O. box and distributed leaflets on the street. And then he wrote something bizarre, saying that Vincent, uh, to Vincent, some exiled Cubans attacked one of his demonstrations. Police intervened, and because of that, he lost support and was left alone. Now, the incident that Oswald is referring to in his August 1st letters, the disturbances between himself and Carlos Bringier in front of the International Trademark, and this incident led to Oswald's arrest and subsequent interview on WDSU-TV in New Orleans. The problem here is that the incident with Bringier didn't occur until August 9th, more than a week after the letter was supposed to have been written. So a lot of effort was taken to create what's called the Oswald Legend. They had to position the individual who was going to assassinate the president um, so that it was clear that he was, in fact, um, a communist, which is why he wanted to assassinate the president, which is a flaky reason because Kennedy was one of the softest presidents on communism we ever had. Now, the evidence that the letters from Oswald to Vincent Lee were fakes uh, is very clear when you look at the fact it was written before uh, the incident that's referred to in the letter. When uh, Vincent Lee testified before the Warren Commission, he denied ever knew Lee Harvey Oswald or confirmed that their letters were, changed, were exchanged between Oswald and the committee. Regarding the New Orleans branch of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, Vincent Lee told the commission this evidently is a letter he wrote in which he replies uh, he'd gone ahead and acted on his own without any authorization from the organization. And if I recall correctly, there's also a letter that was received by myself in my capacity, not having any great happiness at somebody going off on their own and doing something against the rules of the organization and the name of the organization, which is exactly what was done. Um, I mean, he set up the New Orleans chapter, member branch. Well, there was no such thing. 
The whole thing was created out of smoke and mirrors. Now, Lee's letter to Oswald would give an indication of what would be necessary to set up a chapter, which would certainly consist of more than one person operating on his own. So clearly, Lee Harvey Oswald was operating um, under an organization's name he had no right to use. Now, according to Harold Weisberg, the FPCC leaflets that Oswald had been handing out on the street had been printed at Jones Printing. Jones Printing is located several blocks where Oswald allegedly worked at the Raleigh Coffee Company. Now, linking Oswald to what was clearly communist propaganda would certainly paint a picture that he was, in fact, a communist. And Oswald telling Lee he'd printed the flyers could also be seen as a confession of sorts. I mean, let's face it, this is solid evidence. Almost too solid to be real that Oswald was, in fact, a communist. Now, when Harold Weisberg determined the Jones printing lead was never investigated by Jim Garrison, he decided to speak to the owner, Douglas Jones. Weisberg met with Jones for the purpose of identifying the man who was actually commissioned a job, which wasn't under the name of Oswald. The name on the order was actually Leon Osborne. After showing Jones a wide variety of photographs, Jones picked out four photos of the man that he said he conducted business with. He said there were about a hundred pictures, many mug shots of men from coast to coast, most having no connection of any kind with the assassination. And without any reluctance, Jones looked at all the pictures and selected four, all of them of the same man who looked a little different in some and radically different in one. And he had a full, luxurious beard. Jones was firm in his identification, picking that one man, rejecting all the others, including a number of photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald one of which was an Orleans mugshot of his August 1963 arrest. Well, the pictures he selected and insisted with the pictures of the man that picked up the uh, handbill print, hand print job uh, was a man named Carrie Thornley, who had served with the Marines with Oswald. So clearly there were a number of people running around pretending to be Lee Harvey Oswald. Since there was no New Orleans chapter of the FPCC and that the letters exchanged between Oswald and the FPCC were forged, um, you have to consider Oswald hadn't been involved in the creation of the leaflets. Most certainly never went to Tampa to meet with Vincent Lee. So you have to wonder what the real involvement was with, uh, of Oswald with the FPCC, FPCC at all. I mean, was the creation of a false trail to Oswald the work of Thornley alone? If Oswald really had nothing to do with the FPCC other than handing out flowers printed for him by Thornley, then there go his certification as being a communist. The more and more that uh, people dug into the person everybody's referring to as Oswald, the more it became clear he was really a ghost. Everything new about him had been a carefully constructed story complete with props, actress sets, and a script. Another aspect of the allegations against Oswald was the purchase of the rifle that allegedly was used to shoot the president. Without the location of that cheap Italian 6.5 millimeter Carancano uh, rifle that was located on the sixth floor of the book depository, the Warren Commission's case against Oswald would have evaporated. So if Oswald never actually ordered the rifle, I would indicate that other portions against the case against him was fabricated as well. And if Oswald never ordered that rifle, then the backyard photographs of him holding it uh, are worthless. Now, that set of photos of Oswald dressed in black uh, holding that rifle, a holstered handgun and copies of communist newspapers is said to be proof of his militant nature and his communist affiliation. I've got the hiccups again. Communist affiliations. And they tie Oswald directly to the rifle that allegedly was found on the sixth floor of the book depository. Without the rifle, 
you get a pretty good idea that Marina Oswald was involved in the setup, as she claimed to have taken the photos in question herself. Now, I've read a number of things about examinations of those photos that say that they were doctored. Now, without the rifle, the statements of George Morenshield, who told the FBI had seen the Carnicano in Oswald's possession, are also shown to be false. And the same goes for the Paines, who claimed Oswald kept a rifle in their garage. Well, if Oswald never ordered the rifle, then that part of the case goes away, and the outright fraud involved in the Warren Commission's case goes out the window as well. Too many researchers have wasted their time on various aspects of the rifle, looking at the size, the price, and whether or not it came with a sling attached to it. All that becomes irrelevant once you realize Oswald never ordered the rifle. Now, there's one other thing that proves beyond all doubt that uh, Oswald never ordered that rifle, and that's the money order that was used to buy it. U.S. Postal Service money order number 13841597969 for $21.45 payable to client sporting goods almost certainly is a fake. All you have to do is take a cursory glance at the item labeled CE788 and pull up an image of what an actual money order of that era looked like, and it's pretty clear Oswald never laid hands on it. The problem, first and foremost, is that the alleged money order is printed on paper. And... We know this because the ink used to stamp the date on the front, indicating it was bought March 12, 1963, bled through the paper and is completely visible on the back side of the money order. Now, the problem for that, uh, that problem I'm addressing is that in 1963, all U.S. postal money orders are printed on hard cardstock, stock, not paper. So the money order is a fake, a forgery, complete fabrication. And once you realize the money order isn't real, then you have to acknowledge that Oswald probably never sent it. And if he never sent it, then there goes the link to the rifle and all of its implications. Unless you want to take the position Oswald had some kind of high-tech money order counterfeiting operation going on as well, then the conclusion that can be drawn is that it was manufactured for the sole purpose of laying a false trail from Oswald to that particular rifle. Now, Marina Oswald, Ruth and Michael Payne, and George DeMore and Shield all testified to the Warren Commission that Oswald owned the current condo in question. So if, in fact, it can't be shown he ever bought it, then their testimony is now suspect. Other criticisms of the mill order include its frayed edges, which should have been rigid, and lack of the proper banking stamps on the side. Ultimately, once you realize the money orders are forgery anything, and Everything to do with the rifle vanishes along with the case against Oswald. Now, John Armstrong went into, I will say one thing for his research, it was thorough. He went into great detail in a book he wrote called Harvey and Lee. He said the postal money order allegedly was purchased at the Dallas Post Office March 12, 1963 at 10.30 in the morning. According to Warren Commission documents, this money order was deposited in Klein's bank account in Chicago February 15, 1963. So the Warren Commission wanted us to believe the money order was deposited in the First National Bank of Chicago, February 15, 1963, a month before the money order was actually bought in Dallas. Now, the money order in the bank deposit printed in the Warren volumes in 1964 are pretty good examples of how the Warren Commission manipulated evidence in its attempt to frame Oswald as a lone assassin. Oswald never bought the money order, or was this money order ever deposited in Klein's bank account? And if he never purchased or received a rifle from Klein's, then he couldn't have posed for the Life magazine photo, and he couldn't have carried the rifle to the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, which means that the photographs that have been shown around the world of Oswald holding that rifle actually were photoshopped in someone else's um, body holding the rifle 
used to put Oswald's head on it. So as you can see, besides the money order having been a fake, there's a lot of inconsistency with the dates that the money order was allegedly purchased and deposited. All in all, at the end of the day, it's pretty clear that Oswald never bought or sent that money order, so he never purchased a rifle. But you still got Marina in her testimony. She's the one that took the backyard photos, and she's been unwavering in her statement. So what it appears, she did take photos of a man wearing black who was holding a rifle, and if that man was not Oswald, then it was someone else that she knew well enough to cover for. In regards to the revolver Oswald allegedly shot Officer Tippett with, there are a number of other problems as well. According to John Armstrong, the only evidence that Oswald had ordered the handgun was a photostatic copy of the receipt. There was no money orders. Oswald allegedly sent a coupon and $10 in cash to Seaport Traders, which didn't leave a paper trail. Instead of the unidentified brand revolver, Oswald ordered a price of $29.95. He was supposedly sent a fancier $39.95 Smith & Wesson with the balance to be collected in person at the Railway Express office in Dallas. Now, that revolver was picked up March 20th, 1963, but the receipt for the pickup of that item was signed by somebody named Paxton, and they would have asked for ID before turning over a handgun. Only thing linking this gun to Oswald is that the notice for an in-person pickup was said to have been delivered to P.O. Box 2915, which is Oswald's mailbox in Dallas. Now, there's no evidence this notice exists, as no one had been able to produce a copy of it. So the revolver, like the rifles, frankly, another false trail. If he didn't own the revolver, then he couldn't, and in all likelihood didn't, shoot Officer J.D. Tippett. Now, one of the most glaring, glaring problems with the official story surrounding Oswald's receipt of the rifle, Railway Express pickup notice, and numerous pieces of communist literature in this position, possession, they were all sent to P.O. Box 2915, located at the Terminal Annex building under the name of A. Hadell. Now, Hadell was allegedly an alias used by Oswald, and it wasn't one of the names that had been authorized to receive mail there. So any and all mail received for A. Haddell or Alec Haddell would have been rejected and returned to sender. And I've had that same issue with the people that received my mail. According to the official story, this is not what happened. Seemingly, all the mail sent to Haddell made it through to Oswald. In regard to P.O. boxes, Oswald maintained one in New Orleans, which has gotten very little attention from anybody. This P.O. box draws into question a heavily emphasized chapter in the Oswald story, his alleged trip to Mexico City. He was supposed to have jumped on a bus bound for Mexico City on the evening of September 24, 1963, or the next day, the 25th, in the afternoon. Now, there's no evidence to support either one. We know he said they'll cross the border on the 26th, as that's stamped on his travel visa, and the bus is said to arrive in Mexico City in the morning of the 27th at 10 in the morning. Now, the bus may have actually made it to its destination on that date and time, but in all likelihood, Lee Harvey Oswald was the one on it. Oswald arriving in Mexico City on the 27th is dependent on him catching the bus out of New Orleans on September 25th at 1.45 p.m. at the latest. His visa stamped entering the country September 26th. But we've got evidence of Oswald's presence in New Orleans on September 26th. His presence in New Orleans on the 26th eliminates the possibility he could have made it across the border that same day and on to Mexico City less than 24 hours later. Now, Harold Weisberg presented an FBI document contained in the file folder, Magazine Street, labeled Item 8. In the case, FBI informant T1 provided him with two crucial pieces of information. Oswald's change of address form and his application for P.O. Box 30061, the box he used while in New Orleans that summer of 63. 
Now, clearly, informant T1 was an employee of the Postal Service as they had direct knowledge of how postal system operations were conducted in both the change of address form and the application for P.O. Box uh, 30061 were submitted simultaneously on September 26th. A new uh, address indicated for forwarding was the Payne residence in Fort Worth. Now, the application for, PO, for the P.O. Box was originally submitted June 3rd of 63 when Oswald opened the account. It was updated September 26th when the account was closed. So both items show that Oswald was still in New Orleans on the 26th, making it impossible for him to have made it to Mexico City by 10 o'clock the next day. Now, the FBI document addressing the P.O. box is never mentioned or accounted for in the official story, which tells anybody that looks at the facts there was a conscious effort made to hide it. And if this document never made its way to the official narrative, then it's clear that it has some significance that's been overlooked. It also says it's not the only postal documents provided to, uh, to the FBI. What it says, I'm getting tongue-tied here, that not only are the postal documents provided to the FBI authentic, but that they were completed by Oswald himself. So this destroys the notion that he traveled to Mexico City at all. The Mexico City trip is another fiction that laid at his doorstep. Now, the evidence supporting the claim of Oswald's arrival in Mexico City on the 27th comes from the uh, <coughs> guest registry for the Hotel del Comercio, which contains the signature of one Lee, comma, Harvey Oswald. Now, if you look at the comma following his first name, normally this would mean that Lee was the last name. Well, the accusation has been made he was trying to attempt some form of tradecraft to obscure his identity, but a simple comma doesn't obscure anything, not when you use the entire name. Oddly enough, on the same day, the Oswald was supposed to have applied for his travel visa to Mexico City, September 17, 1963. Two other individuals also applied for travel to Mexico out of that same New Orleans office. They're David Pierce Magar, a friend and associate of David Ferry, and William George Godet, an acknowledged CIA agent who worked out of an office inside Clay Shaw's International Travel Mart, or Trademark, rather. What Magar's involvement was has not yet been determined. The FBI interview of Magar indicated he obtained a travel visa for a trip by seaplane on September 24th with return date of September 30th. He told the FBI was hired by the Williams McWilliams Dredging Company of New Orleans to fly two company employees to an area outside of Tampico, Mexico. He acknowledged he knew David Ferry and his history, including his time with Eastern Airlines and the Civil Air Patrol. The FBI's report didn't go into detail about how Ferry and Magar are associated and Follow-up investigations didn't reveal much more information. That's what's in the initial report. But William Godet, on the other hand, is an interesting character. He openly admitted to investigators he was a contract agent for the CIA from the mid-1950s until the late 70s. Published a newsletter magazine called Latin American Report. Awful traveled to South and Central America under the guise of his publishing business, performing covert operations and his magazine served as a propaganda outlet for the CIA. He worked in Latin America under Nelson Rockefeller when he was head of the Office of Latin American Affairs. So this indicates Good Day's service to intelligence began with the OSS in the early 40s and likely continued with the CIA in 1947. So in spite of what he said, he was not a contract agent. He was a full-time employee of the CIA. One time he served as the executive secretary of the Coordination Committee in Costa Rica. Also used his magazine to publish favorable articles supporting United Fruit Company and their activities in South and Central America. In fact, his entire career was centered around Latin American political activities, so by 1963, he was one of the CIA's top men in that area. The implication is he knew everything that was to know about the Cuban groups in New Orleans and was their activities and even knew their personnel. Well, he said he had seen Oswald on the street corner handing out the Fair Play for Cuba Committee leaflets, but denied actually knowing Oswald personally. He also told investigators he had seen Oswald talking to Guy Bannister and stated he knew Oswald was an associate of David Ferry and Clay Shaw. 
Now, initially, he painted the picture Oswald was just a nut handing out the leaflets. Later told Bernard Finsterwald, a high-profile attorney connected to the highest levels of the global intelligence community, he didn't buy the idea that Oswald was a real communist. He believed Oswald was being paid to hand out the leaflets, and he scoffed at the idea that the FPCC was anything but a front. Well, Godet also contacted Sergio Aracha-Smith um, to Guy Bannister. He acknowledged Aracha had um, been running the uh, Committee for a Free Cuba out of an office located at Bannister's um, Camp Street address. And he also knew about Jack Ruby's activities in New Orleans and that Oswald had traveled to Mexico City by bus. Well, despite the amount of information he had on the goings-on of Oswald ferrying the rest of the group, he stuck to the story that the Mexican visa issue was just a coincidence. And even though his Mexico City tourist visa was picked up the same day as Oswald's and had been, and had been the visa issued immediately prior to Oswald's, he insisted that was merely a chance. He stated when he arrived at the consulate, there were several people waiting to obtain their visas, and he didn't see Oswald among them. One of the interesting facts of Godet is ultimately responsible for Oswald's appearance on WDSU-TV in New Orleans on the day he was handing out the leaflets. After seeing Oswald on the street, he phoned a friend, an associate of his, named Jesse Corr. Corr was a head PR man at the International Trademark and closely associated with Khalil Shaw. After Corr had notified of Oswald's presence in front of the ITM building, uh, Corr phones another associate, uh, name of John Corporan, the news director at WDSU-TV. And based on that call, Corporan sent a news crew to Oswald's location in front of the trademark. So that's how Oswald's captured on film and broadcast to the citizens of New Orleans on the nightly news. So clearly a lot of effort was expended to set up the legend that Oswald was a communist. So the incident involving Oswald and WSU at the trademark was another completely staged event designed to draw attention to Oswald and his communist activities and began with William Godet. So what better way to expose your patsy as a communist months before the assassination than to put him all over the evening news espousing the fact he was a communist? And the examination of Lee Harvey Oswald's visa and visa application also reveals a problem. Commission Exhibit 2481 is a visa application for Oswald and the duration of the application is six months. Now at that point in time, there were two types of visas available for the Mexican consulate, a 15-day visa and a six-month visa. Oswald applied for a six-month visa. Instead, he got a 15-day visa, which required a completely different application. If Oswald had been rejected for his six-month visa, he'd have had to complete a separate application to get the 15-day visa. But that's not what is said to have happened. And there's a lot of evidence that the application was yet another forgery. So now you ask yourself, what was Godet's role, if any, in the Mexico City visa incident? All the evidence points to Godet as having been assigned to keep tabs on Oswald. And his knowledge of Oswald's associates and their connections to each other solidifies the case for that. Incident on the street involving WDSU and his subsequent broadcast are obviously staged to further paint Oswald as a communist. Chain of events leading to it connects Godet, Jesse Corr, and John Corporan to Oswald's setup. Spying a PR man got Oswald on the TV. I think it was anything but a setup. Would have been stretching the um, the facts far beyond anything reasonable. Then we have the mismatched visa and the application with duration of stay discrepancy. The clerk at the consulate, whose name was Alina Tejeda, told investigators she did recall Oswald coming in to get his visa. She said he was alone when he came and that there was nobody else present. So, did she actually see Oswald on that day? Was this another incident of Oswald being impersonated? If he never went to Mexico City, then clearly it was somebody impersonating Oswald that went to the um, consulate. Now, Mr. Hayda was interviewed by a man by the name of Gary Sanders, one of Garrison's investigators. When asked about Oswald's visa application, she said the FBI did come looking for it. But she's positive the FBI never photographed it or collected it as evidence. She said she was sure the application was destroyed when the consulate had a fire in 1965. 
In fact, that fire is what uh, motivated the consulate to move to the International Trademark Building. And if the original application was destroyed, never taken to the, by the FBI, then what is it exactly that was presented with the Warren Commission report? Another forgery and like the money order for the rifle, all that remains are copies with no trace of the originals? Well, that does raise even more questions. While in Mexico City, Oswald allegedly made appearances at both the Cuban and Soviet embassies. On October 1st, 1963, Oswald called the Russian embassy from the Cuban embassy. Official story is that Oswald was attempting to gain entry. The Cuban was told that it would take some time, possibly months, so he decided to contact the Russian embassy and hope that they'd issue him the visa immediately. Now, quite frankly, that story doesn't hold water because the Soviets never issued him a visa, especially with this checkered past. They accepted him when he defected to the USSR, but then they offered, when they offered him citizenship, he refused to denounce his American citizenship. And shortly after that, wife in tow, he returned to the States. So there's no possibility the Soviets would issue him a visa at the time, and clearly the Oswald impersonator knew that. The entire point of the trip to Mexico City was to once again paint a false trail pointing to Oswald's dissatisfaction with the American system and the American way of life. Well, his conversation with the Soviet embassy was recorded October 1st, but it was held by the government, not released until 1998, 35 years after it took place. And if the man who's been identified as Oswald spoke in broken Russian when calling the Soviet embassy, and that's odd, considering Oswald was known to be able to speak fluent Russian. He read Russian newspapers, wrote in his journal in Russian, but now we're supposed to believe when he called the Soviet embassy he spoke in broken Russian. Conversation itself is confusing, um, which, of course, leads people to believe that maybe something else was going on. Um... Basically, in this conversation, it looks like he is merely reinforcing the fact that people would remember his name and his presence. Um, and the date of that phone call is said to have taken place on October 1st. However, Oswald's return bus ticket only has one date stamp on it, September 30th. Ticket doesn't have any indication it was purchased for use at a later time. So if he left on September 30th, how could he make the call October the 1st? Um, it appears that the FBI and the CIA had a lot of evidence to manufacture over the years to include the return bus ticket. And it looks like many of the items that were forged for the purpose of framing Oswald were done by different people in different locations at different times, which meant there were a number of errors. So much of the physical evidence that's been presented, like the money order used to order the rifle and the return bus ticket, don't line up with the facts. But back in 63, the perpetrators had no way of knowing that 60 years later, there would be forensic tools that let people figure out that these things were forgeries. Now, the bus ticket was never actually found by investigators. Allegedly, Marina Oswald located it and turned it over to the FBI long after the assassination. Now, she was put on a short lease by the government after the assassination. And you have to believe Keystone cops, though they appear to be today, in 63, the FBI was considered the epitome of law enforcement. And you have to know that they searched her and all her belongings numerous times over the years. So clearly, Marina was in on the setup at a much deeper level than anybody realizes. Now, after he left Mexico City, Oswald arrived in Dallas where he began to seek work. One of the first stops he made was uh, said to have been the Texas Employment Commission, an agency whose purpose was to assist people in finding jobs. When he got there, he met a woman named Laura Cottrell. Oswald told her he had experience working at the state fair, and he's associated with the Teamsters. Now, Lee Harvey Oswald... Uh, alleged assassin had neither worked at the state fair nor was he affiliated with the Teamsters. 
And in 63, the Teamsters Union was dominated by mob figures like Dave Yaris, also known as Murray Miller in Miami, and Robert Bernard Baker in New Jersey. Now, Cattell gave a detailed description of Oswald and described him as a biker type with violent tendencies. At one point during their meeting, Oswald hits Cottrell's desk with his fist, what's called a small flower vase to tip over. And he just shouts some obscenities before he stormed out of the office. Now, none of that behavior demonstrated by this Oswald would be associated with the known behaviors that are real Lee Harvey Oswald. Cottrell later went on to identify a man by the name of Larry Crayford as the person with whom she met who claimed to be Lee Harvey Oswald. She was so adamant in her identification, it's no wonder the FBI's attempted to distance himself from her and her statements a number of times over the years. Now, Larry Crayford, whose real name is Curtis Laverne Crayford, appears to be a drifter on the surface, but there's a lot more to him than that. Jim Garrison's investigation uncovered the fact that Crayford had come to Dallas in early October where he got a job working for none other than Jack Ruby at the Carousel Club. And he remained in the employment of Jack Ruby until November 22, 1963. November 23, 1963, Crayford hitchhiked out of town and wound up in Detroit. Now, William Boxley, an investigator for Garrison and former agent of the CIA, wrote a report analyzing Crayford's Warren Commission testimony. In a memo he wrote to Gashner, he said Larry Crayford's entire testimony is textbook quality for any intelligence services course in resistance to interrogation. It's a classic in the art of selective recall. On the whole, Crayford appears to be traveling in the offbeat uh, church league, maybe as a courier or, or better. And what Boxley's referring to is the odd recurrence of strange church organizations kept surfacing during the course of their investigation. Many of the known players in the assassination, like Jack Martin and Thomas Beckham, that we'll be talking about shortly, were said to have been employed or, or associated with church groups that had very few members, if any, and sometimes only one employee. The belief is that these odd church groups were simply CIA fronts for tax-exempt money laundering. And don't kid yourself, the CIA did a lot of that. Still do, from what I understand. Other than the incident, the Texas Employment Commission was designed to paint Oswald as an unhinged lunatic. Clifford's involvement in the assassination appears to have been minimal. His involvement was more about providing alibis for Jack Ruby. Um, and Jack was almost never where the official story places him. Uh, I mean, there's so many um, instances of different people professing to be um, Lee Harvey Oswald, that it's really difficult to determine um, the actual pathway that Lee Harvey Oswald took. Now, was he on the sixth floor? Doubtful. Did he shoot Kennedy? Doubtful. Uh, we'll be talking more about that as we progress through this. So until tomorrow, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show. Y'all have a truly great evening.